0: Welcome to Skim This. Is Roe v. Wade still a thing? It's a question a lot of people woke up asking this week after the Supreme Court refused to block a near total ban on abortion in Texas. We'll break down how this law could have serious implications beyond the Lone Star State. Then we'll take stock of the damage after Hurricane Ida caused power outages and mass flooding from the Gulf Coast all the way up to the Northeast. Later, we'll speak to a reporter who just left Afghanistan about what's next for the people still there and the thousands who left. We'll also do a skim stock market check-in and wrap things up by talking about wine. Specifically, how AI could make sure that cab you like stays on the shelves and doesn't taste like smoke. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr, let's skim this. Let's start with that major news out of Texas. A restrictive new Texas abortion law took effect this week. This bill, known as SB-8, was signed back in May and bans abortions after a heartbeat is detected. That can be as soon as six weeks, but most women don't even know they're pregnant at that point. So basically, it's a near-total ban on abortion. And while similar bills have passed in states like Louisiana, Tennessee, and Ohio, This Texas bill is unique because it gives citizens the ability to actually enforce the law. People can sue abortion providers, friends, and family members who they believe violated the law or helped someone do so, and get up to $10,000 in the process. That means a friend or even an Uber driver who drove someone to get an abortion could face legal consequences. Abortion providers say, this law is gonna have major consequences, reducing abortion access in the state for up to 85% of patients. This law will also disproportionately impact low-income patients, who might not be able to travel out of state for healthcare. Reproductive rights groups had their eyes on this law and they launched a legal challenge to get the U.S. Supreme Court to block it. Quick reminder, since the Supreme Court's landmark Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, abortion has been legal in the U.S., As a result, states can't directly block women from receiving abortions. That's one reason the creators of this Texas law put citizens, and not Texas officials, in the position of enforcing abortion restrictions. The groups that sued to stop SB-8 tried to convince the Supreme Court that the law's cleverly constructed loopholes were a violation of Roe v. Wade, in disguise. And they asked the court to block the law as the legal fight over it played out in lower courts. They argued letting the law remain in effect while it was being challenged in lower courts would deprive many Texans of their constitutional rights. So would it really be so bad to just maintain the status quo a little longer? Spoiler alert, the Supreme Court didn't go for it. The Supreme Court is allowing a controversial Texas abortion law to remain in place. In a 5-4 decision announced late last night, the justices refused to block the legislation. Late Wednesday night, five of the Supreme Court's six conservative justices issued an unsigned ruling, basically saying, nobody's shown us enough evidence this law is going to harm people if it goes into effect, so we can't get involved yet. We should note, the Supremes did mention there were serious questions about the constitutionality of SB8, but they're not ready to decide that yet. Conservative Chief Justice John Roberts broke rank in a strongly worded dissent. He called SB-8 a scheme that was unprecedented and designed to avoid the Supreme Court from declaring it unconstitutional. In her own dissent, Liberal Justice Sonia Sotomayor called SB-8, a flagrantly unconstitutional law engineered to prohibit women from exercising their constitutional rights and evade judicial scrutiny. Criticizing her colleagues for falling into the law's trap, she wrote that, quote, a majority of justices have opted to bury their heads in the sand. So what happens now? Caroline Kitchener is a staff writer for The Lily, a publication of The Washington Post, and she's been reporting from Texas since Sunday. She told us this law is already having a serious impact. It's already having an extremely drastic impact. So providers
1: stopped seeing anybody who was further than six weeks along on Wednesday morning, the last appointments that were able to be done beyond six weeks for Tuesday night. So that means that you know, they're, they're asking the question, how far along are you? And if a patient says farther than six weeks on the phone, they will not schedule an appointment. Now, if the patient comes in and says that she, you know, thinks that she's less than six weeks along, they might still turn her away at the clinic. They are performing ultrasounds. And, and what I'm hearing from doctors is that they're turning away, you know, many women who think that they're under six weeks, but they're not. And they have to be the ones to tell them that, they can't provide abortions for them in the state of Texas.
0: Meanwhile, groups in favor of SB8 are having a much different reaction. Oh, they're thrilled. I actually just spent the
1: morning with a lot of anti-abortion protesters in Waco, Texas. And they're stunned too. They are used to these kinds of laws passing and then getting struck down before they're able to take effect. So, you know, before Tuesday night, they really didn't believe it either. And now that it's happened, and especially now today that the Supreme Court has decided that, you know, they are not going to block the law at this time, they are celebrating. I did ask everybody about this today, and they said, you know, we're keeping an eye out. They are stationed outside of the Planned Parenthood, and, and they're going to be talking to women and, and who are coming out and asking a lot of questions. And I think, They've got their eyes open and they know that it's on them to enforce this law.
0: And this story is also about a lot more than Texas. Kitchener says other states were watching as SB 8 was crafted and can now see how it successfully avoided getting blocked by the Supreme Court.
1: So what we know about Texas is that it is... It's a trial ground. Um, it, Texas is a really good place to try out anti-abortion legislation like this because everything funnels up through the Fifth Circuit Court, and that is the most conservative by far circuit court in the country. I am positive that you know when all of these state legislatures go back in session in January, we are going to see this bill replicated over and over and over again.
0: Now, all eyes are on whether Congress or the White House will try to step in to reduce the impact of this law. President Biden said on Thursday he's going to look into what steps the Department of Health and Human Services or the Justice Department can take to ensure that women in Texas have access to safe and legal abortions. Legal analysts say it's going to be hard to challenge this law in court because it was purposefully written to be tricky to overturn, Since everyday citizens are the ones doing the reporting, it'll be harder, not to mention time-consuming and expensive, for abortion providers to know who to sue. And while anti-abortion advocates wait for the Supreme Court to possibly dismantle Roe v. Wade on a federal level, a case SCOTUS is set to hear this coming year, places like Texas are paving the way for other states to enact similar legislation to take away a woman's right to choose. Kitchener says as new laws do get drafted in other places, healthcare providers hope that people will start paying attention to these kinds of bills earlier.
1: So, one of the most powerful interviews that I've done over the last couple of days was with a doctor who works at an abortion clinic in Austin. And he said, I've been literally said, I've been screaming about this for months. I've been all over Twitter, I've been talking to reporters, I've been trying to just get on my soapbox and tell people this law is different, this law is gonna take effect and it's going to be disastrous for Texas women. And he said that he ended up deleting his Twitter because it was so demoralizing to be saying these things over and over again over the last, over really all summer since this law passed in May and feel like nobody was listening. So while he's happy that people are finally paying attention and this is finally top of the headlines, it's also frustrating because with more attention and more energy behind this, maybe maybe things could have been different.
0: Alright, let's get to some other headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, earlier this week, Hurricane Ida tore through Louisiana and Mississippi, making landfall as a category four storm. Here's the context. While fortunately, Ida didn't hit the region in the same way Hurricane Katrina did 16 years ago, it still did a lot of damage. Days after the storm, hundreds of thousands of people are still without power and could remain in the dark for weeks, just as the state is getting hit with a heat advisory from the National Weather Service. Many in Louisiana are also without water and are struggling to access fuel. Things are so bad, Louisiana's governor told people who left before the storm not to come back. Then, on Wednesday, what was left of Ida, which included flash floods and even tornadoes, made its way north and hit the northeast, where at least 20 people have died. Streets and homes flooded, and so did the New York City subway. Central Park even experienced a once-in-500-year rainfall event, setting a record for the most rain ever seen there in a single hour. All this extreme weather has people talking about climate change and whether storms are becoming more intense. We're not scientists, but considering that the previous rainfall record for Central Park was just set last month, it at least feels like things are getting worse. Next up. A warning,
2: if you are planning to travel to Europe, the European Union plans to recommend that its members reinstate restrictions on tourists from the U.S. because of rising coronavirus
0: infection levels. Here's what you need to know. Three months ago, the EU told Americans, come on over, relax on our beaches, and eat some croissants under the Eiffel Tower. But this week, it recommended that its member countries restrict travel from the US, especially for unvaccinated Americans. While it's up to individual countries to decide whether or not to let in unvaxxed people, this decision could impact upcoming out-of-office plans, as places like Italy have already instituted stricter requirements for both vaxxed and non-vaxxed people. It's hard to blame the EU for giving us some side-eye, considering 85 million Americans still don't have the COVID vaccine. And not to mention the US government hasn't even opened its borders to most European tourists yet. But vaccination numbers in the US could actually start going up soon because more and more companies are thinking about mandates and the return to office. Here's what you need to know. A new poll of almost a thousand companies responsible for almost 10 million jobs found that more than half of those companies plan to mandate vaccines by the end of the year. So rolling up your sleeve increasingly looks like it'll help you get back in the office and help you escape it. In just a few weeks, things in Afghanistan have completely changed.
3: As the U.S. and NATO press ahead with plans to leave Afghanistan by the end of this month, the Taliban's territorial blitz continues. The Taliban are sweeping across Afghanistan. President Biden has ordered troops back in Afghanistan, raising the total to 5,000 to secure the evacuation of the U.S. Embassy.
0: The U.S. says it has killed some of the people responsible for this week's deadly attack at Kabul's airport.
1: Overnight, multiple rockets were fired on Kabul airport in a new attack ahead of tomorrow's deadline for the withdrawal of all U.S. troops. The last American military plane left from Kabul's airport at 3.29 p.m. Eastern time. A moment in history as that C-17 cargo plane carried the remaining U.S. troops, the top U.S. diplomat and general out of the country. I'm
3: here to announce the completion of our withdrawal from Afghanistan and the end of the military mission to evacuate American citizens, third country nationals, and vulnerable Afghans.
2: The United States ended 20 years of war in Afghanistan the longest war in American history. After the last American troops left Afghanistan, ending what is considered to be the longest war in U.S. history, the nation of Afghanistan is now entirely under the control of the Taliban.
0: To understand what's next for Afghanistan and for all the people who were evacuated out of the country, We called up Jane Ferguson, a special correspondent for PBS NewsHour and a contributor to The New Yorker. So Jane, you've spent a lot of time in Afghanistan and you were there for the final weeks of the US's presence. What was it like to see things just end so quickly? A shock
2: to everybody. And I thought I was a pessimist. I thought I was on the more pessimistic end of the scale when it came to how things were going to go when the Americans left. This was my third trip to Afghanistan this year alone. So that gives you an indicator of how often I go. But this was a different country. This was a completely different experience. This was everything flipped on its head. 180, the Taliban in the streets in control, the Americans hunkered down in a base. So I've never seen so much role reversal to such an extent that it was like a surreal dream.
0: And what were you hearing from people who were in the country who were worried about not being able to evacuate or who maybe couldn't evacuate. What were they feeling? Was it a sense of abandonment?
2: Absolutely, first of all, the scale of people. I was contacted constantly every morning, emails, Facebook messages, even on LinkedIn and WhatsApp and Instagram, people were contacting me. People were shocked that the Americans had decided to leave without finishing the processing of visas that they had promised people. I think there was a lot of shock as well at how disorganized it seemed and how chaotic everything was. There was a sense in in Afghanistan that surely if the Americans are organizing it, it will run more smoothly. So there was a a shock whenever people got to the airport and saw the crushes of people and the lack of any real system that this was an American-run system. Beyond feeling abandoned, people felt terrified that the lives they had built in Afghanistan were collapsing, especially for women who had built careers.
0: As complex as people's emotions are about this, do you also think there's a sense of relief maybe in America that this war is over?
2: America, for sure, absolutely. This is the longest war in the history of the nation. There will always be a sense of relief that it is finished for Americans. It's also worth pointing out that you know, there was never going to be a clean end to this. This is a war that militarily America has lost. So losing wars is complicated and messy and painful. So yes, there will be relief as well as all these other emotions because it's much more nuanced than just this sense of betrayal or leaving people behind. I've spoken to veterans who many of them are feeling both those things. They feel frustrated and angry that people have been left behind and that this was so chaotic. But of course, they also feel a sense of, somber reflection that it is over, and perhaps a sense that people can breathe knowing that a line has been drawn under it for now.
0: And even though America has now left and this war is over, Afghanistan is not gonna be gone from the headlines anytime soon. And that's really because of the people, those who are still there and the thousands of people who've been resettled. I wanna ask you first about what we know about the people who've been left behind. What's in store for them, and are we expecting people to try to leave over the border?
2: We're already seeing it. People are trying to flee overland to Pakistan. I think those who are most at risk of reprisal attacks are going to be those who who had careers in the security forces and in the government. The Taliban came in and very much so tried to sell this idea that they would be taliban light, that they would be you know, a more friendly version of the Taliban this time around. Right now, unfortunately, it's not looking good. A lot of what the Taliban have promised, they haven't delivered on yet in terms of human rights and respecting a general amnesty. So I do think that we're likely to see more people fleeing. Normal life is about to become extraordinarily difficult from a humanitarian perspective. You've got the currency that is reducing in value, which means people struggle to buy food. You've got a vast amount of incomes that are reliant on the international aid community that are slowly shutting off so i think that in terms of what is to come i think the taliban rule is going to be extremely similar to what we saw in the 90s but i think that we're also going to see sadly similar to what we saw in the 90s which is the humanitarian cost of all of this
0: for the people who are left behind the u.s says it'll still process visas to try to relocate everyone who's helped us out during the war but For everybody else, are they just going to get refugee status? And is there hope for them?
2: Even refugee status has to be processed. So the difficulty is there's hope that people can move to the United States, but it's hard to overstate what a complex and slow process that would be. This would take years for for many people who who apply for refugee status. Look at Syrians, you know, how difficult it has been for people coming from other conflicts to come in. We know that the refugee program has been opened to Afghans. This happened before the collapse of the Afghan government when the State Department announced that they would allow them to have something called a P2 visa. But that has to be applied for from a third country. You still have to get to somewhere like Pakistan to, to do that. Pakistan are requiring some sort of paperwork or visas for Afghans to get in there. The reality is, if you're waiting for a visa right now, you don't know, are you supposed to go to Pakistan? How would you support your family there while you wait months, maybe even years for that to happen? And and would it even happen in the end? So these are the questions you're going to be asking.
0: We've all been hearing about the thousands of Afghans that the U.S. and our allies were able to evacuate in recent weeks. What's next for them? And is this a story you're going to be covering?
2: I certainly hope so. I'm already in contact with Afghans who are in Paris, Afghans who are in, in New Jersey, in California. So that is a story that I think is so important because this also bleeds over into so much other news and so much other relevant storytelling in America, which is the immigration story the story of this country and and people that flee war and come here and their journey to assimilate to get back on their feet to to build lives again here is one that is such an american story what those people are facing right now is going to be tough you know it's tough for anybody to start over many people left everything they leave professions They have to figure out if they're qualified to work here in their various professions. If you were a doctor or a veterinarian or an engineer or or a lawyer, they've lost everything financially. So this idea of starting over is so all-encompassing, but I do know that there is a huge network of veterans that, have, that are dedicated to helping. And I've seen this happen to helping Afghans coming over, especially former service members and interpreters, pilots, soldiers. So there is a network out there that helps people. I know that Afghans that have come before them in some organizations like No One Left Behind really work hard to advocate for people to hire Afghans, to reach out to them in their community, to to be allies.
0: I'm curious, you've touched on how resettling is really challenging from physically moving your whole life and starting over. You know, what is it like or what are you anticipating in terms of the cultural reality in this country when it comes to immigration? Do you think that Afghans who are starting over here will face tough cultural barriers to starting over? I think
2: less so than you would imagine afghans have been moving to america for years and they've assimilated very well and thrived and built their own businesses become professionals so there are many afghans you know it's been tried and tested not in this sudden massive scale but that's one thing i would say you know afghan culture is one that is extraordinarily resilient and one that is very good at holding families together. It's very family oriented and that will help them as well because these families are very tight units. And so w- once they sort of form communities, I think that that really forms a bulwark against a lot of the hardships that come with immigration. And I do think that, I hope that the coverage of this crisis helps the American public understand where these people are coming from. So if there are cultural clashes and, you know, Immigration is so politicized right now on both sides of the aisle. If, if that comes up, I do hope that people have a sense of awareness of what these people are fleeing from and why they're coming here and the role that they've played in, in America's war as well.
0: Jane, thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. If you've ever turned on the TV looking for some money news, you may have heard something like this. Stocks hitting all-time highs, SPAC, spec, 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 SPAC. Talk about CEO OMG. Okay, cringy abbreviations and overexcited hosts aside, financial news is exciting. But we shouldn't have to pay for a cable subscription to hear how the stock market and businesses in general are doing. So this week, we're checking in on a few companies we all know, and sometimes love, to see what's up and how things might be changing for you, the consumer. Wait, come to think of it, that stock market bell is really aggressive. Can we make a calmer version of that? Much better. The first company we're watching is Zoom. Quick skim. Pre-pandemic, Zoom was trading at around $60 per share. But after we all downloaded the app last year for work or for school, the stock hit over $500 as Zoom became a pandemic must-have. But now, a year and a half later, people are teaching their yoga class IRL, or are meeting for book club in person. Cue Zoom's stock price dipping quite a bit as people started socializing. It's now at around $300. That's about half of its pandemic high. But even if your Zoom fatigue is real, investors and Zoom itself are saying not so fast. Over the past month, Zoom has started to integrate its tech with other work software you might know, and let's be honest, probably hate, like Asana or Dropbox. So Zoom is likely gonna remain a staple of our work lives, especially since a lot of companies are staying remote or going hybrid. As for our personal lives, Zoom is hoping virtual events are here to stay too. And we're not just talking about Zoom happy hours or bachelorette parties. Zoom is banking on the fact that events like conferences, corporate retreats, or even award shows will still have an online component. So don't move all your virtual backgrounds to the trash just yet. The second company we're watching is IKEA. Quick note, IKEA isn't publicly traded, so you can't buy its stock. But we've all bought a Billy bookcase, right? This week, the furniture giant said, that couch you haven't been able to sell on Facebook Marketplace will take it off your hands. Now, in select locations, US customers will be able to sell back their gently used IKEA furniture. IKEA's not only doing this to become more sustainable, but they've also likely picked up on a trend a lot of us have felt. It's really annoying to get rid of your furniture. Maybe you've eyed a couch on the sidewalk a few times, but not known whether it was bed bug free, or maybe you don't want to buy furniture in the first place because it's a pain to move. Now, IKEA is saying problem solved. Though before you walk that bookshelf out to the car, we should note the buyback program is only in a few places right now, excludes a lot of different furniture, and you're only getting store credit for those used items. So the jury's still out on whether IKEA's latest move is actually more convenient for consumers, or just another pain point in the furniture buying process. The final company we're watching is Amazon. We know, super original. But seriously, Amazon's had a really good pandemic, with hundreds of millions of people online shopping during lockdown. And it feels like every week, we read a headline that Amazon is doing something new, Though most recently, the company is making some big bets on brick and mortar, as in opening new high-tech grocery stores called Amazon Fresh. You might be thinking, don't they already own Whole Foods? And you're right, they do. But they're also opening Amazon Fresh to try out some more high-tech changes to the way we shop, including going cashier-free. Literally, you can apparently just walk out of the store and the receipt gets emailed to you later. And just this month, the Wall Street Journal reported that Amazon is also trying to replace the dusty department stores it spent years putting out of business, like Lord & Taylor or Sears, with its own giant retail stores. Amazon's reportedly hoping that letting you visit its real-life stores will deepen customer engagement, maybe add to its bottom line, and further solidify its status as the place you go to for legitimately everything. Okay, so that's our SKIM stock market update. To get caught up on all your other financial news, you can skip that cable news subscription and head on over to theskim.com slash money to sign up for our weekly money newsletter. Last week, the Supreme Court quietly undid part of President Biden's agenda. The U.S. Supreme Court says the Biden administration has to reinstate a Trump-era policy known as Remain in Mexico. Biden had tried to end the policy forcing asylum seekers crossing the southern border to wait out the immigration process in Mexico. But a majority of Supreme Court justices said, nope, no can do. Then came another ruling on the DL. The Supreme
1: Court is now blocking the CDC's moratorium on evictions during the pandemic.
0: That move has put hundreds of thousands of Americans at risk of eviction. Oh, and then there was this week's big Supreme Court decision on Texas's abortion law. If you're wondering where we're going with all of this, all three of these decisions actually have something in common. They were on what's known as the Supreme Court's shadow docket. As the name suggests, it's veiled in some secrecy, which is important when so much is on the line. Here's the skim on the shadow docket, in 60 seconds. We know how the Supreme Court normally works. Lower court appeals work their way up until they land on the Supreme's public docket. Then, we spend months wondering how nine judges will rule on everything from healthcare to religious freedoms. But the two decisions we mentioned about immigration and evictions? The Supreme Court created a calendar invite forum, but kept it private. AKA, they kept it secret they were looking at lower court decisions and planning to rule on them. And when they did rule, they didn't sign their names or explain their thinking. This whole shadow docket thing was meant for emergency situations, but it's become a lot more common lately, fueling criticism that the six to three conservative court is blocking moves by Democratic presidents more than it does for Republicans. And when you can't see the Supremes work, it's hard to know for certain. Regardless, shadow docket decisions continue to have major impacts on people's lives and can literally be life or death. Like last year, when the court greenlit an execution that had previously been paused. Following a two-sentence ruling and with zero explanation provided by the Supremes, that execution was carried out just 90 minutes later. But hate it or love it, the shadow docket is probably here to stay. Even though Congress met to discuss reforms this year, lawmakers aren't even sure they could do that if they wanted to. How'd we do? Want us to skim another headline from the week's news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. This time of year, there's a new wildfire in the headlines every week.
1: This is a breaking news update on the Caldor fire. It is getting closer to South Lake Tahoe.
0: The Caldor fire has dropped in containment from
2: 19% down to 13% with the rapid fire progression. Now, the wind has died down just a bit, but the fire has now expanded to more than 320 square miles. Officials say it is expected to grow much larger before they can get it fully under control.
0: Right now, firefighters are gradually getting the Caldor fire near California's picturesque Lake Tahoe under control after its three weeks in counting run displaced thousands of people and destroyed hundreds of homes. And this is far from the only major fire right now, as active fires sweep across other parts of California, as well as Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, and Nevada. These fires don't look like they're going away, so some communities are starting to adapt, embracing traditional land management practices like controlled burns. And some industries are adapting too, including one very close to our hearts, the wine industry.
3: We've had and are now anticipating another detrimental fire season in California. So people were panicking because they could lose contracts for grapes over this. They can lose millions of dollars of product because of the quality.
0: That's Katrina Axelson, the founder and CEO of the company Tastry, which uses AI to help consumers figure out what wines they'll like. And as of this year, with California's massive wine industry worried about another smoky season, Tastry is doing something new, helping winemakers restore their smoke-infused grapes to full flavor.
3: It was born out of a lab in the wine industry that I worked at as I was uh, paying my way through college by working as a quality control chemist.
0: Axelson says in any given glass of wine, there are a bunch of different flavor notes kicking around, each of which has its own chemical structure. That's why sommeliers or your local wine store will tell you about the floral bouquet of one bottle or notes of coffee or cherry in another. Unfortunately, Axelson says wildfire smoke has a chemical structure too. And if grapes get exposed to too much smoke? Your wine will smell and taste like a
3: campfire.
0: Normally, winemakers rely on a small number of labs to tell them if their grapes have been affected by the smoke. But last year...
3: All the major labs that were able to do this test were inundated and had, I think I saw up to like a 43-day wait time to get the results back.
0: California wildfires in 2020 caused a lot of grapes to end up tasting like smoke, which winemakers understandably didn't want to use. So they ended up producing way less wine, causing big losses for the industry. According to one estimate, wildfires cost California's winemakers as much as $3.7 billion last year. And this is kind of a big deal for those of us who like to end our days with a glass of Cab Sav or Rosé, because less wine available means what is available goes up in price. That's where Axelson realized her company's AI could figure out how to get rid of the smoky taste in wines, something even the quality control labs used by winemakers couldn't. We like to say we taught a computer how to taste. Tastery's AI already understands what flavors people might taste by analyzing the chemistry in each batch of wine. Now, that AI is helping winemakers decide which other grapes or compounds to add to smoke-tainted wines to try to cancel out that campfire taste.
3: Think of it as having a calculator on hand as opposed to doing math on paper. What we do is we use the technology to run multiple simulations of what kind of wine you could blend and bring to a tasting
0: table. That fast math lets experts ID the blends algorithms think customers will like the most. And besides saving adult grape juice from tasting like apocalypse ash, Axelson is proud her AI is actually helping winemakers instead of cutting them out of the process.
3: AI companies that I feel like are really successful nowadays or are going to be successful in the future are not the AI that are replacing what humans are doing. It's the AI that's augmenting and enhancing what you're already doing. So we're just kind of like um, providing a sanity check and kind of enhancing and accelerating the discovery process for making a better blend.
0: We can definitely toast to the future if it means AI Chardonnay. Thanks for listening to Skim This. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. We had additional help this week from Peter Bonaventure. The senior producer of Skim This is Luke Vargas, and Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. And until then, check out our other podcast, 9 to 5-ish with the Skim, where we're talking all things career. Follow it wherever you listen to your podcasts.